Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is June 28th, 2017, and my guest is Tamar Haspel. She writes the Unearthed column at the Washington Post. It's a monthly commentary, as it is described, in pursuit of a more constructive conversation on divisive food policy issues. She also farms oysters and on Cape Cod. Tamar, welcome to EconTalk. Thanks, Russ. I'm glad to be here. We're going to start, uh, we're going to talk about a number of food issues today. Uh, based on some recent columns you've written, and I have to say almost every one of them is interesting, which is uh, unusual for me. That's a good start. <laughs> yeah. Not everybody would agree with you. No, there. of course not. Of course not. But that's why I'm the host. Uh, I want to start with a column you wrote recently on why some foods are more expensive than others. And the answer you give is machines. And you give the example of tomatoes. So talk about why machines are important in the cost of food and particularly what, what they've done to tomatoes. Well, machines are important in a lot of different crops, but they particularly play out in the conversation that's that that kind of dominates the cost issue when it comes to food, which is uh, people keep asking, well, why are the foods that are bad for us, the foods that come out of the industrialized food system, the processed foods, why are those so cheap? And fruits and vegetables are so expensive. And it's a very good question. And subsidies usually are fingered, and I've written about that as well, and and they do play a role. But a much bigger role is played by other things that are more inherent to the crops and aren't, you know, sort of government imposed. And machines are one of them because the the machines that harvest the the grains that uh, paper the vast acreage in the Midwest, the corn and soy, um, are a big part of why those things are cheap. But when you look at vegetables, it's instructive to look, not to compare them to grains, but to compare them to each other. And tomatoes are a great example of that because we have two kinds of tomatoes. We have the tomatoes that we eat, uh, and then we have the tomatoes that go into cans. And the tomatoes that we eat are uh, have to be Uh, harvested by hand because we demand that they be bruise-free and blemish-free, that they be harvested right at the, the, the height of their ripeness. Whereas tomatoes that are going in cans can get a few bruises. They can have tough skins because those skins are going to be removed in processing. But up until about 1960, we didn't have those differences because there was no such tool as a tomato harvester. And uh, uh, it was interesting because It's not just that an engineer at UC Davis invented a tomato harvester. It's that an engineer at UC Davis invented a tomato harvester at the same time that a plant scientist at UC Davis invented a kind of tomato that was harvestable. And they worked hand in hand. And the net of it was through the 60s, the variety of tomato uh, that was grown for canning changed and these machines were introduced. And over the course of the several iterations of, of machines that got better and better, the cost of labor uh, for tomatoes dropped 92%, which is astonishing. I think it ended up at something like, you know, 24 cents a ton. And I uh, 
And it's one of the reasons, it's not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons that canned tomatoes you can buy at my supermarket. I can find them for a dollar for a 28 ounce can when they're on sale. Whereas, you know, fresh tomatoes in the summer will set you back $5 a pound sometimes. Yeah, it's just an incredible example of how technology, first of all, in the beginning, it makes the farmer a little bit richer, maybe a lot richer. But as more and more people adopt the technology, competition forces the price down. Closer at to its cost. At the very beginning, it makes the farmer poorer because he has to buy the thing. Well, yeah, the outlay. So. Right, the outlay. But but at first, it gives the, the farmer who adopts the technology, if it's good technology, a competitive edge. Right. And then they get rich, and other farmers notice it, or the people who invent the machine want to sell it to those other farmers. And then competition among the farmers uh, pushes the price down. Um, talk yeah, about it how. It changes the nature of the market. You have a beautiful little simple calculation on the tomato example uh how the ratio of fresh tomatoes to canned has changed over time in in particular uh, before the adoption of the harvester and after do you have mm-hmm. that do you have that number handy uh, yeah well i remember it because uh before tomato harvesters were introduced the cost of a canned tomato was about 15 cents a pound and the cost of a hand harvested tomato was about 27 cents a pound. So it wasn't even a two to one ratio. And now it's more than three to one with, um, I think beefsteak tomatoes, the last USDA data I saw showed 92 cents, uh, $3 and something, 17 cents a pound versus under a dollar for canned tomatoes. Well, so but, it's a, but the it's canned a tomatoes, difference. but the canned tomatoes more than a pound, 16, it was 28 ounces, right? So it's even, Oh well, no, that was it. That was a USDA price and it was per pound. Oh, okay. Okay. Thank you. Excellent. Um, the other part I thought was interesting that you highlighted was the impact on employment. I often like to point out that in 1900, about 40% of the U.S. labor force was on the farm mm-hmm. or related to agriculture. And today it's, I think, under three. It's maybe about 2%, two and a bit. And if you didn't know anything, you'd say, well, that must mean people are starving to death. But, of course, it's the opposite. We have a lot of food, uh, even though we have many, many fewer, mm-hmm. in, both in percentage, I think in absolute terms as well, uh, working on, as farmers. So what did that harvester— oh, it's, it's way lower in absolute terms. What did the harvester do to employment and wages? Well, it's very difficult to tease out exactly what a machine does versus all of these other things that uh, that affect food prices and and farm economics. And I'm not an economist, although you are. So hopefully, between us, we can puzzle it out. I only play one but, on econ talk. No, I am an economist. Actually. Yeah, I know. Um, and a couple of things happened. Um, One is the labor dynamic that was going on at the time. And after the war, uh, the Second World War, a lot of farm labor moved into cities because they were better paying jobs in factories. And so farmers didn't have access to the same kind of labor pool that they had earlier in the century. And not having access to cheap labor is one of the factors that really drives mechanization. And so the, the shift from tractor to combine happened at, at about that same time. And obviously that, that played a role. But the combine did some other things too. Because explain what Tamar, explain what a, a combine is, because I've heard, we've all heard of it, but tell tell us what it is. It's a really cool machine, actually. It's this giant box with different attachments to it. 
And it's kind of like, you know, your, your KitchenAid stand mixer. It has all these different things it can do when you plug them in. And, um, and, but its basic job combine is a combination of things. So the, the basic three functions it does are harvesting. So as you drive the combine over the field, it picks the plant, it cuts the plant off. Threshing, so it removes the grain, um, or in the case of corn, the cob, from the plant. And it also cleans it. It gets some of the schmutz off of the grain. Um, and it also can take the leftovers, the stalks and the leaves, and either spit them back out on the field because a lot of farms use it to cover the bare earth, or it can bale those and they can be used for animal feed. Now, a big combine is, I think they can cost close on a million dollars at this point. They're extraordinarily expensive. Um, but one of the reasons they're extraordinarily expensive is this dynamic that we saw where you know, a, a farmer would get a combine and all of a sudden that farmer not just could farm more acreage, but at some level would have to, to be able to get the economies of scale to put the capital into the farm equipment. And the Midwest lends itself to that because of the geography. It's flat and fairly uniform. And uh, and that's one of the reasons that we have these huge swaths of corn and soy and wheat in the, the central part of the country. And so, you know, combines were part and parcel of that transformation you were talking about uh, from going from 40 percent of the U.S. labor force on the farm to, oh, it's between 1% and 2% now. Um, But we grow much more food on less land. How wide is a typical combine, if there is such a thing as typical, do you know? Well, they go as wide. The widest attachment I've seen, and if there are farm people out there, I'm sure that they can correct me on this if I'm behind. The widest one I saw was 32 rows, but I think most of them are probably a little bit smaller than that. It's um, it's an incredibly it, it, to me. It looks like a giant comb being pushed ahead and, uh, and through. It does. And it, it does. And it only works. It only works effectively on what are, what what are called row crops, right? And right. what are what are those? And what aren't row those? Crops, row crops are the the grains and legumes that are grown in rows. They're you know cereals, grasses. Um, that lend themselves to this kind of harvest because they are uniform, they all ripen at the same time, um, and they're very distinct from fruits and vegetables, which, the I mean, there's a reason the USDA calls them specialty crops because they need a lot more attention, they need a lot more maintenance, they have a lot more inputs, they generally require irrigation, which row crops sometimes do, but often don't. Um, and and farming them looks very very different. So I want to give you a couple examples of you know this is one of my favorite things. Uh, I don't know listeners may know this or not, but I'm really I really love specific exa- examples like these of how productivity's changed the impact on on consumers. So one of them, which is surprising, I don't know if you've heard this one, and I've never talked about it on the air, is orange juice. So orange juice comes in these. Not so attractive containers environmentally. Sometimes they they might come in in a septic juice box. There was a big debate over whether that was good for the environment or not. They they come in in various kinds of cartons and plastic. And a lot of people would feel, I think intuitively, that it's better to squeeze your own orange juice for the environment because that mm-hmm. way you don't have to have all the packaging. 
And what people wouldn't notice, and I heard this from a, a Coca-Cola executive who, of course, they own Minute Maid and probably 90 other things. But you don't think about the fact that if you're going to transport oranges from Florida, say, to your house mm-hmm. or to your local supermarket, uh, they're round. <laughs> right. So they've got to be put in a box. The box isn't round. So you stack a lot of boxes in the truck, but the boxes hold a certain a really relatively large amount of air by definition because the box is round. I mean, because the orange is round. Mm-hmm. But a juice box is flat. So when you when you send juice boxes from the factory to the grocery, you're transporting the oranges in an incredibly efficient way. You need fewer trucks, fewer trips. And then the other part, of course, which we don't think about, is that Minute Maid's really good at squeezing oranges. Uh, and we're not as good. You might say, well, what do you mean? We, we get all the juice out. But Minute Maid not only gets all the juice out, they, and you might compost, which is lovely. It's, yeah, it seems to be a good thing. People are, smile on it. But uh, Minute Maid uses every single bit of that orange because they've got a lot of oranges to take care of. So the skins are used for all kinds of things. And the right. I was going to say, I think feed. that they use the skins. They use the byproducts for all kinds of things. So it's surprisingly effective and it's also, of course, uh, probably in many ways better for the environment, unless you live unless you live in Florida, right? <laughs> right. And actually, it's funny because that the whole uh, round versus square part. It in my business, I'm not the journalism business, but the, in our oyster farm, we pack our oysters in onion bags, and of course, oysters are irregularly shaped to begin with. But when you put them in onion bags and you stack them on pallets for for transport, or you put them in onion bags and then you put the onion bags in larger boxes, you're doing exactly the same thing as the oranges. You're wasting a lot of space. And with a, we work with a much larger producer here on Cape Cod, and they have switched over to boxes for that very reason. And the whole revolution of, I mean, I once did a half tongue-in-cheek but half serious piece that the cardboard box is one of the greatest inventions of all time. And the the cardboard box on steroids is called a container ship. And you know, of course, it's funny because I've had that exact same conversation where we've talked about the greatest like innovations of the 20th century and everybody's like, oh, the computer. Yeah. And I go with container shipping every time. Because it's, it's shockingly transformative of price. Uh, and mm-hmm. it, and I think it's – I'm going to give another example, but I, it's really important to remind us ourselves that the price comes out to the consumer because of the competitive process. If, if only one person had the container ships, they could – keep all those lower costs in the form of higher prices for themselves. Right. Uh, so I'm going to give you another, this is a crazy example. I used to, um, used to really be into eggs. I'm still into eggs a little bit, but I, I, in my book, The Price of Everything, I did some egg examples. And uh, as you mentioned, this is a little bit old. It's probably uh, even more impressive now. But this, the, first, the first statistic I want to give you is that in 1900, a maid, somebody who cleaned houses, mm-hmm. uh, made about $240 a year. Uh, that person would work 12 hours a day, six days a week. So they were making about seven cents an hour. Mm-hmm. And in 1900, a dozen eggs cost 20 cents. So wow. they're really cheap, but they weren't really. They took three hours of work for a person of you know manual labor to earn enough money to buy a dozen eggs. Today... And house cleaning hasn't changed much. You do have a vacuum cleaner, but most of it's hard work. Most of it's physical 
exertion. Uh, a maid today, let's say, who earns $10 an hour, and many earn more than that, of course, but let's say 10 to be conservative, they might pay a dollar, in the example I wrote in this book, for a dozen eggs. So that's six minutes. So the price of eggs to a person with limited skill and training uh, has fallen 30 times over the last 100 years or so, mm-hmm. which is incredible. So how did that happen? The price of eggs dropping so precipitously happened for a variety of reasons. And, you know, there are reasons that have parallels in pretty much every other branch of agriculture. But we have developed chickens, bred chickens, that are really, really good egg layers, not just uh, really good at laying eggs, but really good at doing it on less feed. So we have some breeds of chickens that are just astonishing. And I have egg laying chickens in my backyard and I'm astonished at even how they can convert feed into eggs. Um, what are your chickens, then, your chickens in your backyard? What do they, um, how often do they lay? Uh, well, it depends. In their heyday, they lay uh, probably about 250 to 300 eggs a year. Yeah. But I mean, as they get old, it, it it decreases significantly. Yeah, a modern industrial chicken lays about an egg a day, closer to 350, I think. Mm-hmm. And a third world chicken, meaning a chicken run around the backyard with inadequate nutrition maybe and disease issues, I think it's more like an egg a week. So a modern chicken in the industrial setting is about five times more productive. And actually, some of the the most interesting work that I've seen going on trying to improve livelihoods in the developing world is breeding chickens that are specifically bred to not require feeding. They fend for themselves, which is what most, you know, developing world chickens do, and still be productive egg layers. And the power to improve lives where protein foods are in short supply is pretty astonishing. But anyway, here in the U.S., What we have done is we have bred more efficient chickens and we have also developed systems to raise those chickens uh, more efficiently. And um, what that has resulted in, and, you know, it's been a a gradual process, but you raise the chicken in a smaller and smaller space. And now the cage systems are such that the chicken does not move around much. It doesn't expend much energy. It just sits in its cage and it lays eggs. Now, this is a system that I have a real problem with because, you know, economists tend to point to the the fact that we're producing high quality food very inexpensively. And that's very important. But there has to be a point at which we say, are we willing to do this to an animal in service of this price differential in eggs. Um, and, and I don't think that we ask that question often enough or rigorously enough. Well, we don't want to think about it uh, for starters. And I want, to, I want to come back to that in a second, but I want to first add one data point that I think dramatizes the efficiency that you talked about. Uh, in the old days, you put a bunch of chickens out in the backyard, and then the morning you got up and you see, like you do, probably, you, you see, did they lay any eggs today? And you go pick them up. Right. So in the modern world, and again, these numbers are about 10, maybe 15 years old, so I don't know if they're, they're probably more impressive now, but a modern chicken coop has almost a million chickens in it. So it's like a city of chickens. Right. The number of workers, this is the shocking part, the number of workers in that chicken factory that egg laying factory is two 
So there's mm-hmm. two people who are overseeing 800,000 chickens mm-hmm. that are laying a quarter of a billion eggs a year. And my favorite number, I calculated this, I think I got it right. If those people, if all they had to do without the coop, in other words, the coop is technology. The coop isn't just a place where the chickens live. It's got, it dispenses medicine, it dispenses food, it collects the eggs. It it's does all kinds of, yeah. it's incredibly capitally, capital intensive. Uh, if all those two people did was just pick up the eggs that those 800,000 chickens lay, and they picked up two in each hand a second, mm-hmm. they'd have to work 23 hours a day just to pick up the eggs and put them somewhere. So it, it's an incredible improvement in technology that, as you point out, oh, one more important point. When I was doing my research on this part of the book, I asked uh, an old an old person who'd been in the egg business for 50 years uh, about these changes. And he said, you know, the coops are so much bigger. And he said, after a while, he just said, you know what the problem with our industry is? And I said, no. He said, too many eggs. Because <laughs> it just lowers the price. And as a result, the gains from all that improvement in technology go to the consumer. But as you point out, this is what, let's let's talk about this. As you point out, we don't want to think about it much. And when we do think about it, some of us, maybe a lot of us, and certainly an increasing number of us egg eaters, are uneasy with the fact that these eggs lead a very, these chickens lead a very unchicken like life. And I just want to put in a plug for my friend and co uh, creator of the Keynes Hayek rap videos, John Popola, who has a really phenomenal documentary on how we treat animals called At the Fork, which raises these issues. He's a meat eater and he's wanted to investigate what it, is going on in, in the farms that produce the food he eats, and he, it's not so nice. So, no, what, are your, so nice. what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think that the way we treat animals in our conventional systems is often uh, – what I would think is substandard. Um, I am not a vegetarian. I eat meat. But I believe that if we're going to raise animals for meat, we owe them a decent life. I eat very little meat that comes out of the conventional food supply. My husband and I, you know, catch our own fish and, and we shoot our own venison. And that's most of the meat that we eat. Um, but There's also pressure, I think there's beginning to be pressure to change these things, although I'm not at all convinced that it's going to make a lot of headway. And I'm glad you brought up eggs because that's it's a really, really good example of the dynamic between producers, consumers and prices, because um, there started to be, oh, I don't know, about three or four years ago, a lot of pressure on egg producers to go cage free, to take those chickens out of those little cages and put them in open spaces that have some kind of of enrichment in the environment. And, you know, we can talk about whether that's a better life for a chicken or not. And people do have that conversation. But uh, so companies like, you know, Panera Bread and McDonald's and and lots of other bigger companies were putting pressure on uh, the egg industry to change. And the egg industry has been changing. And as a result, there are many, many more, and I don't have the numbers at my fingertips, there are many, many more cage-free eggs available than there used to be. And if you go into an ordinary supermarket, you find them, and they're more expensive. They're about, it varies, but maybe a dollar more per dozen. 
And Business Insider just did a story last week about how there is a glut of them and consumers won't buy them because they are unwilling to pay for them. So when you go to McDonald's and you have your egg McMuffin, the price difference is probably either small enough so that it is invisible to you or it has been finessed in such a way that it is not passed on to you. Um, But consumers themselves, if we expect them to pay more for animal welfare issues and their similar issues around environmental sustainability, I, you know, I think we're whistling past the gray barn. I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, I didn't see that business insider issue, but it doesn't quite make sense. Usually if there's a glut of something and people don't want to buy it, the price will come down and then that difference will. It depends what the choice is. Um, I don't think consumers look at cage-free eggs as much different from ordinary eggs. And if there's a premium, it has to be pretty small before consumers will ignore it. Um, You just expect that that premium to get very small if suddenly there are a lot of cage-free eggs available just for the same reasons we've been talking about competition. It could be a short-run phenomenon. It could be they've invested – uh, suppliers have invested a lot in these technologies and they're not going to pay enough to sustain that model. That's very possible. But then they have to go on and and replace them with the old cage system, which is a huge investment again. Um, I, I, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that I don't think we're going to go back. But the reason we're not going to go back is not because consumers are going to step up. The reason we're not going to go back is because the food chain is going to fix this problem. I think that most of the problems that um, that I would say are priorities in the food chain, and I can give you my personal yeah, go crank ahead. list. Give us some. All right. Here's my personal crank list. I think that animal welfare is a big one, um, particularly with regard to chickens and pigs, although not to some extent with cattle also, but only in the later, uh, the last six months or so of their lives when they're in feedlots. And some feedlots are, are fine, but other feedlots are not so good. Um, I'm not a big fan of confining animals. And I've written about the fact that it's really hard to try and figure out what makes an animal happy. But I think we owe it to those animals to give it our best shot. And, you know, we have chickens and we've had pigs and we're having pigs again this year. And I think I have a shot at, at, at figuring out what makes a pig happy in the same way you have a shot at figuring out what makes your dog happy or your cat happy. Animals have a way of telling you what they like and what they don't like. And, and I think it behooves us to pay attention. Um, so animal welfare is a big one for me. I actually think once we get out into the fields and we're talking about plants, the single biggest problem is fertilizer runoff because it's causing toxic algae blooms that are doing tremendous harm to, to water systems. Um, I'm also concerned about the fact that we're growing a huge amount of food that goes into food that is not particularly healthful. So we're eating a lot of processed food that's built on this huge quantity of corn and soy. But, you know, that's a very sticky problem to to solve because it involves not just farmers, but food processors um, and and consumers, of course, who vote with their wallet. Well, I certainly want to get rid of the ethanol subsidies, which have yeah, that which have mandates, which have made a lot more acreage devoted to corn, which I don't think has been a good thing for the world or the environment. But um, the fertilizer runoff is an interesting issue. How how when you say it's a big problem, 
I don't know much about it. Where are those blooms, those algae blooms, are they are they centralized? Is there a particular area of the country that it's a bigger problem they're, than others? They're happening in a lot of places. Um, and there's a big problem in Des Moines where I believe the water utility, and somebody has to check this before you take it to the bank, it's the water utility in Des Moines that has sued the upstream uh, farmers because they have such terrible uh, problems. And there was a big problem in Toledo with Lake Erie. There's a big problem in the Noose River Basin down in North Carolina. There's a huge dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. These problems are not small and they're not localized. They're very big and very significant. I'm just going to mention three ways that economists think about those problems, because that's a classic example of what economists call an externality, imposing costs on other people. So Mm -hmm. one way to fix that or improve that situation, of course, is to tax fertilizer. Uh, The second, which would discourage its use, the second would be to mandate a particular way of using fertilizer or ways of, of farming. And the third would be what we just you just mentioned, which is a lawsuit, which would make it expensive for people to use it in a different way than a tax or a uh, a top down solution of of a mandate of certain types of farming being uh, required. So it's just interesting, I think, for people just to think about a little bit what those choices represent. Can I bet how- you to suggest another way. Yeah, I sure, mean, please. I, not that I'm an economist. Those just the three off the top of I, my head. Go ahead. I think one of the most important things we can do. Um, and it's a it's a difficult thing to do is we can try and provide incentives to farm in a, for farmers to farm in a different way. So, for example, there's evidence that different techniques like uh, no till and cover cropping um, can reduce the runoff from fertilizers because it increases the soil's ability to hold on yeah. to water. Sure. Um, but those things can be expensive. They can decrease yields. Um, And if this is something that we all benefit from, I think we have to talk about making the case that incentives for these need to be built into the farm bill. Maybe we need to restructure it in some ways to take these things into account and aligning the subsidies that we earmark for agriculture with the environmental outcomes that we not just want, but I would argue need. I would call that a priority. Yeah, I guess you know if you if these lawsuits are sufficiently punitive, uh, those kinds of alternative ways of farming will become more uh, attractive. There'll be an incentive to use those, but of course, there's you can do it more directly through the farm bill. I'm always uneasy about that. That's just my style. Um, I kind of am too, but I don't know of a better way. Well, we'll see what the who wins those lawsuits Uh, if the city of Des Moines or whoever it is is suing them uh, wins, it'll start, maybe it'll see some changes. It'll be interesting to, uh, to yeah, watch. I think it actually, I, and I wish I'd read up on this before I talked to you, because I think there was a ruling that, um, but I, 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 my memory isn't good enough to yeah, okay. talk about it. But right. it, it's an interesting case. We'll look for a link to it and put it up with the, with the episode. Uh, let's move to vegetables. Uh, and we'll, we'll use the animal uh, welfare example as a point as a segue, a lot of people, because of this issue of the way animals are treated, and of course, most of the ways to make these animals more comfortable require space. Uh, So the chickens require space, the pigs certainly require more space, the feedlots that you mentioned. When you see, and I mentioned John Popola's documentary at the Fork, when you see how they're actually treated, it does, uh, I think, make 
any reasonable meat eater somewhat uncomfortable. Uh, as you say, it's hard to know how happy an animal really is, but you do mm-hmm. see discomfort. You see fear. You see what appears to be anyway. Um, and I think it's I think it's uh, it's a very interesting issue. So a lot of people have suggested, of course, as a way to deal with this, and there are other motives that we should just eat more vegetables. Uh, we don't think broccoli feels pain, as far as far as we know, and there are also worries about climate change and uh, that that pr- they people suggest might be improved by having uh, fewer uh, cows, say, uh, producing mm-hmm. methane and other things that they produce. Um, What's the problem with that? You wrote a really interesting piece on why that's not as attractive as you might hope. And, you know, in some ways, of course, it is attractive because we all should eat more vegetables. But here's the thing about vegetables. Right now, you know, about 1% of American cropland is planted with vegetables. If we all ate the vegetables that we were supposed to eat, which, you know, we triple or quadruple consumption, you know, maybe we're up to 3% or 4%. Throw in some fruits and maybe you're up to 10% of the acreage that we have in this country, but probably not even. Probably just 6 or 8% could grow all the fruits and vegetables that we're supposed to eat. And it's great that we would all eat these things, but it's not going to solve agricultural problems because you're talking about this tiny sliver of our land. And... The other thing is, if you have a, if you, we eat more vegetables and fruits than is recommended, you know, the four or five servings, even the six or eight servings, and we want to eat, you know, 20 servings and have a really vegetable heavy diet, that becomes a problem because vegetables are expensive to grow. They're inefficient. They don't produce the kinds of calories per acre that these, that other crops do. And so the, my little bugaboo is that when people think healthy, I wish that I could get them to stop thinking fruits and vegetables and start thinking whole grains and legumes, because I think those are the answer. And earlier we talked about row crops. And so some incredibly nutritious foods, lentils, peanuts, dry beans, barley, oats, even the corn and soy that are planted right now, if we ate them as foods rather than, you know, fed them to pigs and cars and, and, and turn them into Twinkies. Um, and it's those foods, I think, that, that are so uncharismatic and dirt cheap that we need to be turning our attention to rather than the broccolis and the kales and the green beans. So you have two fantastic uh, facts then, Eric. I just want to mention first, 60% of the world's calories come from just three crops, corn, wheat, and rice, mm-hmm. which is unbelievable. Um, and, and I... When you're talking about vegetables, you don't mean corn, wheat, and rice. You mean broccoli, kale. You mean green right, vegetables, right? right? Just Because right. I think of those as vegetables. Um, but you're using the term different, a little more precisely. The other, this is just to make your point about cost. It costs $5,000 an acre to grow broccoli, and corn is $700. Factor in, the cor- the factor in that corn delivers 15 million calories per acre to broccoli's two-ish million, meaning about... Corn's about seven times more calorie per acre delivered. It's just that the cost to grow broccoli is 50 times larger than corn per calorie. Uh, it's, right. just, it's just shocking. <laughs> it's astonishing. And, you know, the point I was trying to make was that it's not really subsidies that's causing this discrepancy. But also, you know, in our uh, 
corner of the world here where we have a problem with too many calories. We tend to think of calories as the enemy. But um, when you're talking from an agricultural standpoint that we have 7 billion going on, 9 or 10, depending on who you believe, we have to think about calories because every single one of us needs about 2,000 a day, give or take. And so broccoli and green vegetables deliver essentially nutrients with very few calories, whereas legumes and whole grains deliver nutrients with calories. And given the choice from from a land use point of view, you want the nutrients and the calories. From a diet point of view, if we get too many calories, you definitely want some of the nutrients without the calories. And I'm a big vegetable eater in my house, but I think we have to acknowledge that vegetables are something of a luxury. Um, and this idea that they're going to feed the world um, is, it, 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 it just, the math doesn't support it. What do you have to say to my uh, listeners on paleo diets who, um, who worry about, they don't want to go to those, those grains. They want to stay away from them. You got any help for them? Well, you know, we could get into the whole issue of diet and its connection to health, but I think suffice it to say that there's not a whole lot of agreement on any of those issues. That's correct. But there's not a whole lot of mainstream support for the idea that a paleo diet is optimal. And from an environmental standpoint, you know, a beef and leaf diet is absolutely the worst you can do in terms of carbon footprint. Um, the only thing I want to mention, I just I remember a wonderful uh, book by uh, Stanley Liebergott on the anthropological view of human evolution and how in the old days we would sit around and eat berries and and grass and and lead simple lives without livestock and and other modern amenities. But he points out that getting a lot of grass and berries to get enough calories to feed yourself so right. it, it was a it wasn't this idea that people sat around they they they'd hunt for a couple hours and then they'd sit around and, and just i don't know look off into the distance and think deep thoughts they probably spent an enormous primitive human beings probably spent an enormous part of their day trying to stay alive right and and there's this is our deep-seated love of foods that have a lot of calories um, but it's not unique to humans. It's funny when when I take um, the melon rinds and innards, the cantaloupe, you know, once I've cut off all the melon, I take it out to the chicken coop and I give it to my chickens and they'll peck at the, the rinds, but they go ape for the seeds. <laughs> they know that those are high yeah. protein, high calorie foods. And that goes immediately. And after that, at their leisure, they'll peck away at the orange that's left on the, on. Uh, they know they're not dumb. Now you also have bees. Yes. I understand. Do. And you've written about that. I want to, we did an episode with Wally Thurman away a while back on the issue of colony uh, destruction and some issues. I forget the right acronym. C is it CCD? CCD. Which stands for what? Colony Collapse Disorder. That's what it is. I, I love that disorder. It makes it sound like it's a neurotic result of trauma or something. But um, <laughs> you had, what I loved about your piece on bees is 
you actually tried to say something nuanced because it's actually a complicated issue. So talk mm-hmm. about where you think we are on that issue of, of the health of the honeybee in, in America. From that episode, maybe if listeners didn't hear it, but it, and you referred to it in your article, honeybees are incredibly important to... They're incredibly important. So and talk so, about why yeah. and what's gone wrong and why people are worried and where you think we are. Let's talk about bees, but can we also talk about nuance? <laughs> because sure. I think that's, that's kind of the common theme in a lot of the, the things that I tackle. Here's the thing about bees. Um, it used to be that bees in this country um, were very easy to raise. And I'm talking about from a recreational point of view. I'm not talking about commercial beekeepers. Um, but uh, I know people who had hives in the 80s and you just put it out there and your bees did fine. Um, but now it's really, really difficult to keep bees alive. It's difficult for recreational and, of course, it's difficult for commercial. And you can see the difficulty that commercial beekeepers have with the data on the number of colonies that are lost every year. And lots and lots of really smart people are researching this. And pretty much everybody, not absolutely everybody, but there's a reasonable consensus in the scientific beekeeping world that the number one problem is this little mite called the varroa mite. And we didn't have varroa mites here until I'm going to say maybe it was the late 80s, maybe it was the early 90s. Um, And they came here. Uh, I don't think people are sure where they came from, possibly Asia. And now they are in every single hive. And the varroa mite um, is, it latches on to the bee. It's a parasite. And just so you have a, a different a, a sense of the scale, it's as though you had a parasite the size of a football on your back. They're fairly large compared to to honeybees and they wreak all kinds of destruction and they can also make the bees susceptible to pathogens and disease. Um, but they're not the only problem. Um, they're also, there's no question that pesticides that in the environment are a problem and not just neonicotinoids, but, but the whole burden of different pesticides is a problem. There are new kinds of diseases. There are new viruses. There are new fungi. There are new pathogens. Um, it's just become very, very difficult for bees to survive. And there's also the, a question of, of uh, a bee monoculture. We only started breeding bees in this country about 50 years ago. And they were all, all from similar lines of, of genetics until recently when, when beekeepers have started to try and, and incorporate more uh, genetic lines in to bees, um, but it's it's like it's a perfect storm of things that are are killing these bees, and it, it's heartbreaking to watch your hive die, which I have done more times than I like to count. However, um, they are making progress. They being the sum total of people who are are looking at this problem, particularly. There's a guy who's a commercial beekeeper out in uh, California, I believe, a guy named Randy Oliver. His website is Scientific Beekeeping. And, uh, you know, you ask him what are the top three problems with bees, and he says varroa, varroa, and varroa. And um, varroa management uh, looks like it is really improving the survival 
of bees. And we're getting better at varroa management because it doesn't look like varroa is going away. Um, but there are also things that, that are happening from a, a pesticidal point of view. So, you know, neonics is what has gotten everybody uh, uh angry. And the reason is that these seeds are seeds are coated with this particular pesticide. So it's systemic in the plant, which is one problem. But there's another problem. When you plant those seeds, you get a cloud of that pesticide coming off. And there's there's fairly compelling evidence that I've seen that the, the systemic level is quite low and probably not sufficient in most cases to harm the bees. But the cloud, when you plant it, is a big problem. And farmers are developing ways to plant those seeds without that cloud. And they're, I think they're also working on better ways to attach the pesticide to the seed. So um, hopefully things are improving, but I got to say the numbers are really not encouraging. And, you know, for beekeepers to lose over 30% of their hives every single year is really demoralizing. So let's talk a little bit about the practical side of beekeeping for you. You're not a commercial mm-hmm. beekeeper, I assume, or you don't, no. I don't know. It's just. No, I'm not. So how many, how many bees might you have as a amateur? Well, we only have two hives and I will tell you that we got them through the winter and we lost them both in the spring. Oh, so, so what, it's- <laughs> so what will you do now? Well, we're going to wait until next year because we just don't have the heart to start again this year because we have started again so many times. But we have found that, you know, we have gotten better at beekeeping. We have done better at varroa management. Um, there are two acids that we use to to control bees. We use formic acid, which is in the form of, of mite strips that you put in the, the hive, and then there's oxalic acid that we, we use a drip in the fall um, after there, there's no more brood. Um, and that can, and then we do mite counts so we know what our mite problem looks like. Um, but obviously that's not the sum total because we did get through the winter and then they both hives died despite the fact that we were feeding them. And so, um, uh, you know, it's funny because the people here on, on Cape Cod who I work with, and there's some very good beekeeping beekeepers, are apt to say that one of the biggest problems is what they call PPB, which is piss poor beekeeping. And, and you know, don't ever underestimate that. So, but, you know, we're trying to learn. We're trying to do better. Bees are incredibly interesting. And, and watching a hive thrive is, is very rewarding. So I think we'll, we'll probably try it again next year. I want to talk about that rewarding issue because you have chickens, uh, you got bees, and that's in, – both are increasing, I think. Certainly not the, – the chicken part is. Uh-huh. My, my sister-in-law has a, has some chickens in her backyard. Uh, occasionally, she loses one to a fox or a raccoon or a coyote. But um, I, I'm not a big fan of the chicken as a pet – I do get the appeal of an egg. Uh, eggs are cool, and I assume they taste better, so I'm going to let you talk about that. Uh, but what I found interesting about bees is a neighbor of mine recently gave me a thing of honey that mm-hmm. that her hive had produced. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's the essence of local because she's a neighbor, right. and the bees get their – produce that honey by hanging out with the flowers in our neighborhood – and, and in your yard, possibly in my yard. Uh, uh, well, she's not a next door neighbor, so so maybe not my yard. But 
the honey that that came from that was extraordinary, and mm-hmm. I'm curious how much of the appeal of beekeeping for you is the and and chicken keeping is the quality of the uh, product versus the experience of interacting with the animals and the creatures. So it, people talk about this all the time, and I think it's an important topic, but. One of the reasons that people think that they're, you know, the eggs from the chickens are delicious and the honey is delicious is because we evaluate the things we eat on more than just their flavor. And the fact that you know that it came from your backyard or it came from these bees down the street um, makes you look at this with um, with benevolence and enthusiasm. And when we first got chickens, we got these eggs and, and they're, they're beautiful eggs because they're, they're fresh and the, the yolks stand up and they're a different color. They're not pale yellow. They're sort of bright orangey yellow. And we were eating them and it occurred to me that they really didn't taste different. They pretty much tasted like eggs. And so. <laughs> we're chicken. We, no, I'm just kidding. We, Go ahead. Did, we did a blind taste test. Hmm where uh, we recruited people and we literally had to blindfold them because, of course, the eggs from the from your backyard, they do look different. Um, and we discovered that when people are blindfolded, they cannot tell one egg from, from another. I wrote a piece about this and I actually I interviewed a, a poultry scientist about this because, of course, the egg industry has known this forever because they've done these rigorous tests. They don't do it with actual blindfolds. They manipulate the light so you can't tell the difference in color. And they know that when people know it's a brown egg versus a white egg, they have a preference. When people see a yellow yolk versus an orange yolk, they have a preference. But if you take away all the visual cues, you cannot tell one egg from another. And I got so much angry email, I can't <laughs> even tell you. Because they were, they can tell. Yeah. What an idiot I was. People told me that, well, their chickens lay more delicious eggs. They don't know what's wrong with my chickens. Um, But a chicken is a great equalizer. A chicken can take a huge variety of different kinds of diet and crank out the same egg, which is one of the things that has made its domestication such a win for human health in the food supply. Okay, so what about honey? Do you think they're the same? So honey honey is totally dependent on what those bees are, are harvesting. Have you ever had chestnut honey or buckwheat honey? No. So chestnut and buckwheat are are these really dark honeys and they have different flavors. And, you know, clover honey is has a very light, um, a light color and a delicate flavor. And and they vary depending on on the the flower because different nectar tastes different. And so what you love is that particular combination of flowers that are in your neighborhood at that time. So here where we are, you know, we have um, uh, locust trees that bloom in the spring. So there's locust honey in the spring, but then we have goldenrod and autumn olive in the fall. And so that honey would be different. But you also just love the fact that your neighbor has bees and you think the honey tastes delicious. I actually walked by her house uh and I was probably about two blocks from her house, and I passed a honeysuckle plant, and I stopped, and I smelled it, and it was extraordinary. And I suspect that's one of the secrets to that 
but there is a psychological factor for sure. And, you know, we so much of what we eat is is something that we have grown or hunted or raised. Um, And I find it enormously satisfying to feed my family and my friends these foods. I I do think that there is a, a very, very compelling human imperative to feed ourselves. And there's a kind of brainstem level satisfaction that's different from, you know, acing a test or getting a promotion or writing a book. Um, It's a really deep seated satisfaction to being able to put something delicious on the table that I have harvested with my own hands. On your website, you say you quote, try to stay connected to the idea that food has to come from somewhere. What does that Mm -hmm. mean to you? And elaborate on that. I think it's really easy to forget how our food gets produced. And and what you said earlier, people don't want to look. Um, and especially when it comes to animals, they want they want to buy the cubes um, in wrapped in saran wrap on in the little uh, cellophane, the little uh, styrofoam tray. And and I think we forget what has to happen and who has to work hard and who has to suffer in order that we have affordable food. Um, And I think that when we aren't aware of those things and most food production happens sort of out of public view, that's when we risk some of the excesses um, that Uh, The documentary that you mentioned, I'm sure, although I haven't seen it, documents because lots of them have. Um, And it's it's not just animals. It's uh, certainly farm workers. And my colleague, Barry Estabrook, has done some important work on that. Um, And it's also soil degradation, the way we're growing crops in this country. Um, There are problems. And I think that if we all tried to stay a little more closely connected to the things that we eat, um, we might be able to tackle those problems in a, a more constructive and cooperative way. Do you think there's a difference between vegetables and animal protein? I, you know, I think about, I don't grow either. I don't do either mm-hmm. of them myself. But if I, if I thought about it, uh, my wife has gardened some in our life and just even the most simple thing, you know, home, homegrown basil is really mm-hmm. fun to put into something. It's very mm-hmm. fresh, obviously. It's delicious. Uh, is it a good idea for people to to see the processing of, of beef and chicken and pork that uh, would it would it make their lives more would it change the, the way we feel about ourselves and our lives? Besides the fact that it might change what you want to eat, because it, it would be unattractive, for, I think, for most of us, which is why we like the styrofoam tray. I'm just thinking of the the sort of primal idea that that being connected to your food has some effect on us. I, I don't know. It's hard to say, and I think it would affect different people differently. I think growing some food at home is a terrific idea. I think uh, because you get this sense of satisfaction. I've never known anybody who grew food who didn't have that sense of satisfaction. Um, 
And it's also great, I think, if you have kids to get kids involved in doing these things. I mean, we talk about this intransigent obesity problem we have. And over and over when I talk to people, one of the things they say is, well, you know, adults are going to be hard to change. But if we can shape children's view of food a little bit differently, maybe we won't have so much of a problem as they grow up. I also think that I I think that that. A slaughterhouse should be a senior class trip in every public high school in America. I think that that um, it's important to understand that an animal has to die for you to eat meat. Whether it would change the way people view food for good and all or whether it would just put high school seniors off hamburgers for a little while is very difficult to say. Um, but I don't know that there's a downside So, um, you know, I think transparency, engagement, and ultimately the only way the food system is going to change is for the food chain itself, for the, the, the companies that buy the raw ingredients and for consumers who are those companies' customers to change their habits. And I don't see that happening if, if food growing and production remains a mystery. It seems to me, you talked about how it might be hard to work on adults, but we can make some difference with children. It seems as if younger folk in general, I'm 62, uh, people who are in their 20s have a very different attitude toward food and mm-hmm. food production and vegetarianism mm-hmm. and animal welfare than did my generation or cer- certainly my parents. And if you told my parents, I suspect uh, if you tell them that uh, we're worried about how chicken, whether chickens are happy. They'd be puzzled at that question and issue. It's not something that they even. In fact, I think they might laugh at you even. Uh, whereas I, I, I'm going to I'm going to push back on that because I don't think they well, would. You don't know my parents tomorrow, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I think that you know my my mother grew up going to her uh, uncle's farm in in Minnesota, subsistence farm in Minnesota. And they had chickens and uh, big chicken house, lots of eggs. And and I actually think that that a lot of people of that generation, sure, they might scratch their head at, you know, caring so much. But I think they also might be horrified if you showed them pictures of what happened in a factory farm. Oh, I agree. And I just think the insulation of of modern consumers of food from the process ha- induced a lot of um, apathy that I think is much less common in today's youth. Yeah, I think they're paying attention, and the market research on that would certainly back you up. So the point I wanted to think about, and I wanted to hear your thoughts, is that food is, in many ways, you, you made a great point earlier that the broccoli's a luxury, or green certain types of green vegetables are a luxury. It seems one of the ways of thinking about our incredible wealth that we often underappreciate in America. Obviously, our obesity problem is an example of that. But the other aspect of it is the amount of attention that we pay to our food, the amount mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. attention we pay to how it's produced. And I don't mean in the farming sense, that's part of right. it. I also mean in our homes. The, the role that food plays uh, has, has gone from a, a necessity to a sport, 
right? It's it's our t- our television. There's there's something called the Food Channel. I mean, the the fact that that exists is just remarkable, and the attitudes that we have toward food, the the way that we judge people for the way they eat. Um, Mary Eberstadt had a, a fascinating essay that uh, many sexual taboos are less common now. We're much more mm-hmm. open about that. And now we use food to judge other people and to condemn them and to mm-hmm. and to use political correctness on them and straitjacket them and so on. Um, and as a food writer, you must get that in your email. You must think about it. So close us out with some thoughts on that. Well, I'll tell you that I try really hard not to do that because I think that food taboos and, you know, obsessions with how food is is made and and you know the whole farm to table movement and things these are are pretty much unique to wealthy people and there are huge swaths of the country i think where this doesn't happen in this way and it certainly doesn't happen in lower income households. And, you know, there was there was a study done recently, I think it was out in North Carolina, where a sociologists went into the homes of people primarily lower income um, to actually see what they made for dinner, how their families reacted to these things. And there was none of that. There was only the struggle to find the time to cook, to figure out what to cook, to try and get kids to not eat quite so much of what was bad for them. And and I think that for a lot of people, food is a struggle every day. And maybe this phenomenon that you've talked about is is a further polarization in a society where polarization is running rampant that rich people obsess about their food and most people just try and eat a decent meal. My guest today has been Tamar Haspel. She writes for the Washington Post. Her column's called Unearthed. Tamar, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks for inviting me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.